Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super fast three-player online poker set and go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 154 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by AmericasCardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from AmericasCardroom.com, Simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are also on iTunes for free or on the OneOuter.com website. Keep your questions for Alex coming in, questions at OneOuter.com on email, or you can post them in the Facebook group or tweet them to me. Alex... This is our, one of those days where we're catching up because um, you've been busy and we're doing two episodes back to back. So the first one was good fun. It was all about your WPT run and we had a very special guest on. And uh, this one, we're just going to get right into the questions and if they take an hour, they take an hour. If they're done in 30 minutes, they're done in 30 minutes, whatever. But we're going to try and batter through this sort of Mail, the ones from the mail that I've pasted on my phone. So, are you cool with that? Good to go. Let's do it. And hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Okay, right. The first question is from Pete. How do you deal with weird raise sizes? I'm talking about 6x or greater sometimes even in early stages of tournaments. Or perhaps later in tournaments when people 4 or 5 exit. Usually recreational players, and usually they are age 50 plus, if I'm going to stereotype. How can you play against this? Should we play with suited connectors, etc.? Just pass. Is it even worth it getting into it with them? Or just wait on premium hands and 3-bet them hard? Well, uh, thank you for your question, Pete. Uh, As with anything in poker, you do have to determine what kind of range you think the person is doing this with. Generally, the older players that you're specifying tend to have a pretty tight range when they do that. Maybe nines would be the bottom of that. Maybe not even indulging in an ace-jack offsuit or something along those lines. So if if their standard open was 4, 5x, 6x, and they were doing that with a 20, 25% range, such as the younger players are, you just have to treat it like a traditional open, which means Actually, your three bet goes way. Your profitability gets much, much higher uh, with these kind of opens. If somebody opens to, let's say, five x, and you know they're doing it with twenty percent of the hands, and you can three bet to fifteen x, and you know they're only going to defend their fifty five x stack by jamming or folding, you know you know they're not going to flat. In that case. If you have the guy full, you know, playing uh, six, seven percent of the hands, uh, he's folding a majority of the time, and that means a majority of the time you're just making eight, nine big blinds on the play. That's nine hundred big blinds per hundred. That's almost how much money you make with pocket aces. Uh, it, it you'll be doing that the majority of the time. Obviously, 
once in a while he does pick up a hand on you. Hopefully you're making sure that's only happening 30, 35% of the time, depending on how you range him. But it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to be slightly made up for that. You're going to make decent money. Uh, your profitability is going to be much higher than it would be. Sometimes a guy opens a two X and a guy just three bets to five X with a five, seven suited on the button. And I don't even really think they like the play. Uh, there's many, there was a young, uh, French, Asian French player, uh, like, well, what French Canadian who happened to be Asian of descent. And, uh, or I guess he wouldn't be French Canadian then now, would he? But anyway, he was from the Montreal area. Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. Well done, Barry. And, <laughs> and anyway, uh, but uh, that, that derailed me, <laughs> but, uh, he was a very tight player, and the only time I saw him really uncomfortable was he three bet a five seven suited, and I'm not really sure why he did it because he played he was playing got fine. <coughs> uh, I wouldn't say great poker, but I'd say fine and actually probably pretty fitting uh, for WPT Montreal. But uh, the the thing the thing about it is a lot of times a guy opens a two x and you make it five x with five seven suited, and you don't really have a plan to barrel post flop. Well. <clears throat> you're only making, you know, you're making peanuts with that hand on average anyway. And if you don't really have much of a plan to barrel down, like you're making next to nothing. So compared to making a couple big blinds every time you three bet the really big open, uh, I'd, I'd go ahead and three bet the bigger open. Now, how often does this happen? Not very often. Uh, there's There are older players who will just open to 5X every single time they have anything playable and I do like to three bet them at some point you just have to pretend it's a 2.5x if you want the hope of winning the tournament like that this has happened to me deep in Venetian events and stuff like that when I was playing with a older clientele one time but uh in general I think it does denote strength so uh, most of the time I just lay off of it the one thing I see a lot of people do is they go, I don't know what to do. Let me split the difference and call the big blind. That is the absolute worst thing you can do. And that is everybody's reaction to this. It's like, I don't know if I should three bet or fold. Okay, I'll split the difference and I'll call. And it's a, okay, you're cold calling with a hand and you admit you think the guy is a really strong hand. So you're going to fold on most flops. So what ends up happening is that guy just ends up picking up a huge pot a majority of the time, and it's going to be really hard to surmount that when on the few times you do hit. So you end up losing a ton of money, and the way people do that all the time, I always see, I always, like, there's a lot of, I don't mind changing your raise size. I don't, I don't understand why 2x, 2.5x is the be-all, end-all. Like, I can throw a pitch other than a fastball. I can throw a slider. I can throw a curveball. If I want to throw a three, if I'm going to throw out a 3.5X, it's because I don't think you're going to react that well to it. And one of the reasons I throw out a 3.5X is sometimes I'll get this knucklehead in the big blind who just can't fold, and I want to get 3.5X every time he misses the flop, as opposed to 2.5X. That's going to increase my earn all the time. And if everybody folds, that's not bad either because with some of these anti-structures, like you're, making, like you're making a ton of big blinds per hundred every time everybody folds if they're folding a little too tight. And then if they do call you, they're super careful on the flop, which is not what you should be doing 
if you're calling off a ton of chips pre-flop. You, this sentence does not make sense to me. I'm going to call off a bunch of chips pre-flop because I'm probably folding the flop. Like, that does not make sense to me. That, 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 it's the opposite. It should be, I'm calling off a ton of chips pre-flop because I have a damn good idea of what I'm going to do on this flop. I know what's happening on this flop turn and river, but a lot of people go, I, I, I don't know, and then, okay, I call. And then, no, just fold. If you don't know what to do, just fold. That's fine. Okay, I, I think that's about as good as we could get on that question. Good luck to you, Pete. Yeah, my, my experience of it is like old guys making the blinds are 1 in 200, and the old guy puts out like 2,000. And it's yeah, like, I like fold, those guys. <laughs> fold, 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 and then he wins the three hundred in the middle, and then he turns over aces or kings and says like, "Yeah, that's not the way to play." But isn't yeah. there? I was doing some research on this because I've been putting a lot of work into how people like my. I went back and redid my opening game. I wrote a manual for myself on my opening game, just ten thousand words, right, and. I really retooled a lot of things because your opens in any game are really a big deal because it sets up everything else. The way the play comes down in basketball is going to change everything, and the way uh, you open in chess is going to change everything. And I find a lot of people are very lazy about their opens, which is, I will open to this size with these hands, and I will figure this out later. And if you can listen, if you ever watched a... well, I was, okay, Jason Kuhn. I watched a Jason Kuhn video on Run It Once once where it was just uh, uh, the one thing I really liked is he really paid attention to what he was opening and where and why. And I thought that was really impressive. And I think he's he's somebody who's had a lot of success in poker because he's putting a lot of thought into that. And I, I find that it, it, a lot of the guys that do open to like 2000 and then you know they win a couple big blinds yeah that's not the way you want to do it but you should take special care as to what you open to and what you're thinking about and a lot of times if you don't have like sound logic behind it uh just go ahead and take it off and it yeah but the majority of people like opening to four or five acts are like various same which is (laughs) it's it's just aces, right? In your in your game, Barry. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just usually. Okay. <laughs> I love okay. the 10x. Oh, in the one thing. Oh, the other thing I was gonna say, I was discussing this at the Jason Kuhn video uh, with a friend of mine. Well, I was I I was discussing this in general with Jonathan Little, and he was saying, "Oh, this is like uh, I think the name of the guy was Jordan Christos. Jordan Christos opens it. This is what got me thinking about that. Okay, now. Uh, he opens to like 10x, 20x, like every hand. And I think that guy's got like two WPT wins or something like that. But what he does is essentially makes you play for your tournament every every hand, which I, I think is taking it a little far, but apparently it works for this guy. And there is some logic to it, but the vast majority, 95, not, not even 95, 99% of players you're going to see doing those kind of raid sizes, they, they just have the hand, like Barry's saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's go on to the next question. We have one from Laurie. Um, hey guys, I have a question for the show. It's about playing ace-king, queens, and jacks when facing a 4-bit. When we have a good stack, 40 big blinds, 
I hate to flat call here and see an overcard or not hit with my ace king. But when we five bet shove and get called, it is usually kings or aces. What could I use as a checklist for whether to fold or shove? Apart from how aggressive the player is, but even then they can sometimes have aces or kings. Uh, thank you for your question, Lori. Uh, something I, I can I, I can tell where your problem here is, Lori, is your sizing. Uh, what's going on is probably in your games they're opening to like two to two point five x, and you're three betting to like five to six point five x, right? Which, if you're playing like forty big blind stacks, leaves your opponent in a very awkward position, right? Uh, and un- unfortunately for you, people have gotten really good at this position, right? This is why. Going back to our first question, I think altering your opening sizes is like coming in, like, let's say everybody in the world knows you're, uh, you're, you're a standard boxer, right? right? Right hand, your heavy hand. And you come into the ring southpaw, and the guy's been training for nine months with all of his spar- sparring partners are not lefties. He's going to be screwed up the entire match, right? And that's why I alter my sizes. I don't do it all the time. But I alter my open sizings, I open my three-bet sizings, because all of these guys' training is in the sizings I assume you're doing, which is somebody opens a 2x, 2.5x, and all their experience has been with people three-betting to like 5 to 6.5x. Why don't you make it 7.5? Why don't you make it 8? Because if you make it that big, I'll tell you what happens. That's a very uncomfortable situation, and they'll do one of two things. One is they'll freak out, and they'll just jam. And that's actually pretty good if they do that. I find they do that with a wider range than the hands they'll, like, five bet with, which is, a, a, excuse me, your four bet probably shouldn't. We, uh, I, I'm sorry, I forgot that you were asking about what do you do if they five bet. Don't give them room to five bet, right? Just jam on them and make it look like you went psychotic with ace, queen, or nines, right? That's how you get calls by tens, jacks, in the lesser hands, right? And the other thing is, you could change your raise sizing. If you did open to 3.5x and the guy 3-bets you to 10.5x, he probably has it. But that's, I mean, that's just like a pie-in-the-sky thought. I mean, I, I do explore that intellectually in tournaments, and I do throw out that open on occasion. But it, more importantly, I think, so you're worried about the 5-bet. You have like a 40x stack, so I think... If you made your, you could beef up your open size. It doesn't even have to be like a big size, and you could beef it up to like two point seven, two point eight, something they have a little less training in, and then hopefully you get a big, nice three bet out of them where they go to seven point three point seven point five. And if you four bet with all these hands, like you cannot make a mistake, unless their three betting range is like four percent, five percent, which is not happening uh, that often, right, or if ever. Uh, you cannot make a big mistake there. But a lot of this is, I, I think, is you're probably playing small ball in a... It, what you're doing is you're opening to a small size. They're able to do a three-bet sizing that's a little small. And you're in a game where people do not five-bet light. So do not rely on them to five-bet light. Uh, rely on them to call too wide or three-bet too much. I think those are much better bets to make. I think you can get people to just, or three bet to, to too big of a sizing, right? And to three bet to too big of a sizing would be excellent. 
So I, I think those are the weaknesses you should be focusing on a bit more. Good luck to you, Laurie. Okay. And uh, you're battling through these questions. Uh, this is going to be a, a, short, a short episode. Uh, we can be asked about something. I don't know. Okay. But, uh, this one is an email from... Now, the guys told me how to pronounce his name, so I want to do this properly. It's Omi. This is an email from Omi. And Oni? Omi. Uh, oh, okay. I was going to say, Oni means demon in uh, Japanese, yeah, but yeah, yeah okay, yeah. continue. Uh, no, he's uh, phonetically wrote it, his name's spelled, uh, I would have said Ami, A-M-I, um, but he says his name's pronounced Omi, so it's Omi. Okay. Um, okay. This question is, uh, thank you for uh, putting together such an entertaining and helpful podcast. I've enjoyed listening for the past few months, particularly, particularly to Ask Alex. I came to know about you through his site and newsletter. My question focuses on live games in poker-only card houses, non-casino poker rooms that have sprung up in responses to laws that restrict certain types of gambling. Having played in both New York City and now in San Antonio, these games play very differently than online or casino card rooms. For instance, 1-2 in a casino usually plays... Uh, a max buy-in of 200. 2-5 has a max of 500. In the room I play, 1-2 has a max of 500, but you can also buy up to whatever the largest stack is. The main difference I see in these rooms is the players have a much bigger desire to gamble. This impact is seen immediately as raises based on X times the blind have less meaning than raises that a fixed dollar amount that people have in their mind is worth a call or not. What adjustments should we be making? Should we take more of a stack-to-pot ratio approach pre-flop or continue with thinking in terms of blinds but just ratcheting up the number? By the way, one of the best things about these card rooms in Texas is there are no rakes and no tipping in chips. There is an hourly seat rental charge you pay when you leave and you tip in cash. This keeps all the chips on the table and makes for some huge stacks and huge pots which drastically changes the dynamic. Second question, oh no, we'll, we'll leave it, we'll, we'll let you go with that and then I'll read, that's me just reading it as it is. We'll do that and then do the second type of question. Uh, re- really good uh, question, Omi, and it sounds like really, I hope I just pronounced that right, excuse me if I didn't, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's it's really nice that they keep the chips on the table too. I I'd really appreciate that. Just pl- paying a table charge on the side. But uh, if people are going to treat it like a table game, then it's a it's your job to become the house. Just keep offering them bets. You know, are just you got to think of it in the terms of a gambler. So something I'll do. Let's say last game I was in like this is I was playing a really loose game in Pittsburgh, and you know, like, it, it, what would happen there is, like, three guys would limp, four guys would limp, and if, for $2, and if you ISOed to the standard, people do the big blinds, right? So it's, okay, there's three big blinds out there, there's one big blind, there's four and a half big blinds, okay. So I'm going to raise to, uh, uh, I'm going to raise to six big blinds, right? I'm going to make it 12. Or I'll even go a little further out, like seven or eight big blinds, right? That's almost 2x the pot, right? No, 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 no. Think about what bet do you want the guy to make with you? You got to become the house now. So my my ISO was twenty five dollars. 
my ISO is $30. Because what I'm saying is I'm taking my range here, which is pretty, you know, it's a, it's a pretty strong range. You take any handy limp against that range and do whatever you want versus this, that. I'll bet my hand is beating your range. And I generally, I would do fairly well on that. And then if I wasn't, what ends up happening is for like four, six hours, you just keep, not even that long, you just keep ISO raising. You keep ISO raising and everybody folds and eventually someone gets pissed off at you. But, and they do something stupid. And then if you pick up one stack, like that's, if you look at your big blind per hour percentage, what you want in No Limit Hold'em Gash Games, that's your day. It's a really simple strategy, but this is all I did when I was a teenager and I was subsisting off of poker, uh, and I did play live, is I would just raise to these stupid amounts. Um, I got... They would they would call me a nut peddler, but poker players always, if they want to gamble, they will find a way to say, he could be bluffing this time. He could be. And you think about it, there's guys that show up in the card room, they don't care how much you're betting. They just want to gamble. It's like you said, like 7-9 suited, I want to see the flop. Okay. If you get one guy to call you, that's the holy grail. Because that guy's going to miss most of the time, and it's going to be pretty easy to rail him. Uh, rail him. It's going to be pretty easy to read him. Uh, the other thing you do is you play a lot of two-pair of better poker, which is you flat a lot of raises and you get in there, and if you make two-pair of better, you play a big pot, and if not, you don't, right? If it's checked to you and you got one pair, go ahead and bet, but if they raise, just let it go, because nine times out of ten, the gamblers have it. People do not bluff enough in No Limit Hold'em. This is something I say. Uh, I was watching a Matthew John video recently. He said the exact same damn thing, which is people do not bluff enough. He's from a very, like, frequency side of things. I'm from a real experiential side of things, and we both have the same opinion. And I think that's pretty much true everywhere, right? People do not bluff enough. So just trust people when they raise you. And if you got two pair better, you got to ask yourself, does this two pair work against this guy? And you'll, you'll get a feel the longer you play in these card rooms. Like, this, this guy kind of goes out of his mind once in a while. And this guy, you know, old Steady Harry, you know... It, He's not check-raising there without top set, right? And you'll, you'll start getting the feel for that. But I just, what I do is I just bomb, like, really big pre-flop. And then usually the only guy who calls me is the worst player at the table. And I ask myself, what wager do I want to make? Let's pretend, you know, Alex the Casino is here. Uh, well, my wager is going to be, I've, like, I've had four people limp there in, like, one, two, and I've been in one of these games where you're 500 deep or something, and I just make it 35. Like, if I was playing cash online, I wouldn't do that. Not in a million years, because it's not going to work the way I want it to work. But the way you become a better poker player is you alter your play in accordance with your environment. So in that environment, yeah, people are there to gamble. Buy are the best places in the world to play. And Barry, have you noticed, We've done this show for five years or whatever it is, and we still keep hearing about these great places to play. I don't think poker's going to die, do you? No. No, it's like, like that's something kids want to tell themselves, right? It's like everybody's like, poker is dying. It's like, oh, oh, sorry, old dog. We're going to have to put you out of your misery. God forbid you have to show up for work tomorrow. And it's, uh, but it, like, I feel like a lot of regs say that because. If poker did die, just period, they could just 
admit, okay, it's over. But as long as they know there's money in it, they have to keep going at it. And I think a lot of them have just lost the passion. But I, I hear about a card room like this every five minutes. And I just played in Montreal. I'm like, surely people could play. But, like, they weren't, like, like it wasn't like playing with Isildur. Everybody just got to the river and just went, oh, bah, 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 I don't know what to do here. And, yeah. And, uh, anyway, and these, I don't know how the cash ants play, by the way. I'm just judging by tournament play. But uh, going back to your question, yeah, just isolate big isolation raises. If one guy raises and you want to, you can also do that. Like, a guy ISOs to $18, and you don't want to have 40 callers behind you. Don't three bet to 44 bucks and then get a cold call and get another cold call. Three bet to 80 with your premium, right? Get the guy to do a ah, gee, golly, gee, Willikers and call. And then uh, people don't like to fold. Like, they just do not like to fold. And uh, once they've invested in a hand, okay? So, yeah, and... Uh, uh, I, that's always what's helped me in really loose games. And it, it's very, very intensive, and you have to have thick skin to do it. So uh, good luck to you on that one. Okay, the, sort of second part of his question, he said, secondary question, if you know of any resources for these type of games, we'd appreciate any info you can provide. I cannot provide any info on that because I, I haven't really... The the few resources that are out there, my friends who play cash games, live cash games religiously, are very dismissive of, and they seem very... Well, when we talk about poker, they teach me a lot of the times, and the, every play works. So I assume they know what they're talking about. So if they're not really into those materials, I can't really recommend them to you. So sorry, that's something I can't help you with, Omi. Okay, so just just work on your game a little bit in terms of standard cash game and probably maybe even a bit more management on yourself in terms of like you said it's they're going to be high variance, so just a bit of mental game work then maybe how to deal with that variance and stuff. Yeah, the other thing you could do I forgot to bring up is uh, you can short buy the table and just every time everybody limps you can just jam or you know every like I don't know what the minimum buy-in is but if the minimum buy-in's like 100 and everybody's limping and the iso raises to like 18 you can just jam on that guy every single time and you will make a lot of money doing that strategy there's a lot of guys who short buy cash games who make a ton of money cuz what ends up happening this used to be what Phil this is all Phil Lock did back in the day by the way it was what would happen is one guy would raise like normal and like four guys would call. And this is everybody. The initial raiser was opening damn near anything. And the three callers were just calling with whatever they felt like. And it, he would just put the pedal to the metal and jam, right? Which wasn't even a bad. Let's put this in one, two terms. So one person opens eight, two guys call eight. So there's 24 out there plus the blinds. It's about 27. Shoving, if you did three bet there, it'd have to be like to twenty eight thirty. That's pretty much all your chips anyway. So you just shove a hundred because everybody has enough to raise or to call to raise, but they don't have enough to call a hundred dollars off. And every time that works, if that works twice, you just increase your chips by fifty percent, and you just made fifty dollars, right? And a lot of times you can do this and pick up serious chips, and then you can play from that stack if you'd like. Uh, I, I think that's actually. I don't think that's a bad strategy. And a, a lot of times people will just get pissed off and they, 
I hear this all the time. Like, I just hated this effing short stacker, so I was going to call him. And I'm, well, now he's never going to leave, right? It, there you go. Like, it, you're just giving him exactly what you want. You'll see call downs like a guy is like King Jack suited, and he'll just call you. And the only way you could ruin this is when you have Ace King uh, clubs, and the guy hits the jack, you just piss and moan, right? Like, that's the, that's the only way you could ruin this. Right, because well, and I, I don't mean like you're going to get kicked out of the card room, but that's how you'll ruin it for yourself. This is also another high variance way of playing, but that works as well. Okay, that those are the strategies I can give you. Okay, uh, this is the last question that I pulled for today. So, this one is anonymous, and thank God he said right at the start, please don't use my name. Because, <laughs> uh, I'm I am known for that. It's okay, um, Ben. We won't say anything. <laughs> So this one is uh, my question for the show. Please address the possibility that database analysis can have feedback issues. For example, if I study my database and it shows that playing queens in early position is a losing play, so I then stop playing queens in early position, but in actual fact it's because I play them badly. This is an extreme example, but I wonder sometimes if my sample size is large enough for very specific spots to be sure if it's a leak and not variance? No, that's a really good question. Uh, thank you. Uh, whatever your name is. But uh, the thing being, yeah, if you have a small sample, you can't really draw from it. This is just like when you read uh, uh, when you read a study in the newspaper and they say, like, eight, you know, eight people ate chocolate and they reported feeling better over two weeks because they ate chocolate three th- times a week. It's okay. But are they super healthy people normally? And, like, they could eat whatever they wanted because they're in the gym five times a week? And doesn't that mean they're probably happy anyway, no matter what they ate? And, yeah, you can do, like, small sample sizes and flawed samples as well with databases, which is why I look at hundreds of databases. I can't legally join them together, so what I have to do is politely ask to look at everybody's database and see what's happening. And then if you see it across a 100-something databases that 97% of people make this amount of money with this hand, you kind of get the idea that's what a good player makes with that. So when I look at your database and I see you're losing money with queens under the gun, well, that's quite, that's pretty far off from what it should be. So now we got to look at how you play queens, right? That's the kind of database analysis I'm doing. Now, does it hurt to look at your database? No, because if you see, like, I'll I'll give you guys some general numbers, okay? Uh, If I can remember these off the top of my head. Uh, With aces, you should be making 800 to 1,100 big blinds per 100, right? The the higher in that threshold, the better. Uh, With your big pairs, kings, queens, and jacks, you should be making 300 to 500 big blinds. Uh, per hundred. The higher the threshold, the better. With your big aces, that's ace-king and ace-queen, you should be making about 200 big blinds per hundred. With, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember. After that, it kind of falls off a cliff. Like the small, like the medium pairs, uh, if you're making like tens to sixes, like you should be making like 70 big blinds per hundred. that's, that's not even, like, 50 big blinds per 100 I've seen in a lot of good players, and I, I think they could probably get that number a little higher, but not by much. Uh, with suited connectors, like, 
making 50 big blind for 100 is fantastic. Like, that's hitting 400 in baseball, and a lot of people make 300 big blinds for 100. I mean, 30 big blinds for 100, excuse me. Which, by the way, translated comes down to, like, 0.3 big blinds per hand, right? Uh, if you do that right. And uh, that's not. And then when you get down to the suit of gappers, like, a fifth of a big blind per hand, like, 20 big blinds per 100 is excellent. And there's a lot of guys I see who just break even with those hands, but they randomize so well with them, they're actually increasing their profit margins on some of the bigger hands. And that's really hard to tally with database analysis. That only The only way you would figure that out is if you have somebody like me who just spends all their life watching poker. But uh, in small pairs, again, like a third of a big blind is just crushing it. Sixes down to, sixes down to twos. And... After that, you really shouldn't be making a whole lot of money with anything. Like, that's 95% of your profits come from, like, 6% of the hands. So, like, when you watch, when you watch a guy, this is, what, this is how you know most poker training is just garbage. You see a guy opening, like, 7-5 suited from the low jack, or whatever they, I guess that's what the cool kids call it now. Like, that hand is good for, like, .15 big blinds, Right? And he spends like 20 minutes in his training video showing a super fancy line he's never going to take again. Let's say he even gives you like a great line you could use all the time. That's like literally showing you how to go from 0.15 big lines per 100 to like 0.2. Right? Like technically he did just increase your profit margin there by 25%. But if, if he had done that with big aces, like there's a lot of guys who have 150 big lines per hundred with big aces. And if you get them up to 200 big blinds per hundred, that's the same thing. That's a 25% increase. Uh, that's a huge deal because you also get dealt, you get dealt seven, five suited very seldom. There's only four combos of that. You get dealt it, like big aces, like ace king. You can get 16 combinations of that. 16. So you're going to get a lot of aces. And if you learn to play those a lot better, you're going to make more money. This is the kind of database analysis stuff I'm using. Like, yeah, like, you gotta, I, I could see how you could use this wrong, because let's say, okay, Sabermetrics is, uh, I, I believe that's the official name they've given a baseball statistics analysis, and every nerd, every baseball nerd gets every magazine on earth on Sabermetrics, and they have every goofy-ass stat you could ever imagine, and it all adds up to nothing, because you also have to know what you're looking at. And there's not a manager in American baseball who doesn't have a ton. Like, there's no, like, computer nerd who is, like, baseball manager of the year. All those guys grew up in baseball, played around baseball. They need to know the analytics really well, but they have to deviate from it also because they have to know how it's going to play out, and they need to know what they're looking at. So if you don't know what you're looking at when it comes to your database, it, it could be really dangerous for you to go, Oh my God! With seven five suited, I'm making two hundred big blinds per hunt uh, per hundred hands. I gotta play this hand more often. Whereas if you don't know about sample sizes, or uh, if you don't know, per, perhaps the few hands that did really work out shouldn't have worked out that way. And it, what you're really looking to do is seeing if you could spread everything over a bunch of hands. Right? You're trying to focus on maximizing the profits with all those big hands. Which, 
a lot of people who want to play a lot of hands will tell you, well, the way you're going to do that is by randomizing with these hands lower down the chain. I'm like, I don't believe that because nobody wants to fold in poker. So I don't think anybody's even, since they're all high watching TV or they're on their cell phone, I don't think anybody knows or cares if you three bet with eight, six suited. Therefore, there's no reason to do it. If you're prop. If your profit margin on that three bet over time has been very small, or on average you're not, if you always three bet those hands are fold and your your profit margin on suited gappers is 0.28 big blinds, if if the spot does not seem good within the tournament to go out of your way for a third of a big blind, don't do that. Or if the player you're picking on doesn't give you good reason to believe you're going to be making 100 big blinds per 100 because this guy's such a knucklehead. He's just going to give you chips out of position. Then don't do it. The, those are, if you can look to take concepts and spread them across every hand in a category and to know what those numbers should look like and how you can get them further, that is really, that, that is really where the benefits happen. And this kind of like strengths-based that what, what is it? Strength, strengthening, training, whatever you call it, right? I do this stuff with my students, and it's just bang up gets them money. Bang up gets them going, right? And there's a lot of, like, something that uh, actually uh, it has been helping me a lot that the database did recently, database analysis did recently, is I found a lot of people cannot play Broadway's. Like, they just can't play king-queen offsuit. They can't play king-jack offsuit. They can't play it to a three-bet. Uh, they don't pick the players right. And their 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 profits are... I, I can three-bet those hands and do decent with them. But you're never... What I found out is, like, my profit margin with those hands isn't that much. And a lot of people screw it up. And so if you're having... If, you're, if you show up to work in two hours and you go, oh, my God, I'm on my B game right now and I'm in all these tournaments... If you drop those hands, it's fine, right? But if, like, we were just going back to the Stone Age of poker where it was like, you know, oh, so-and-so big cash game player, three bets these hands, and he's killing it. If you're not going to do it, you're never going to make it to this level. You wouldn't know that that player isn't making a ton of money from those hands, but he needs to three bet those hands whatever percentage of the time to maintain uh, GTO frequencies in higher stakes games. Uh, so as to not become readable. You don't have to worry about GTO and these basic-ass games if you're playing a $55 on party poker. No one's paying attention. And if you just focus on... What I'm doing with my guys now is we're just focusing on the big hands and we're playing them well. We're doing the right sizings. We're getting the profit margins. We're bringing the profit margins up. And this kind, this stable game does have a calming effect on people because when... You go in knowing what you're going to do and you know why it works and you know how it works and you know how to do it. You don't take bad beats too harshly because you can see the profit margins across databases. You can see it working. And people are doing much better with this than you sit around. Everybody wants to do hand history reviews. And hand, hand history reviews is just a chasing after the win half the time because it's like, oh, you know, if we'd done this in this situation... I think it would. This would have been better. It's like, okay, great, prove it. Card runners, EV. Uh, sh show me on your database how you're making money with that play. 
there's so many, and by, by the way, I, I'm always open to being wrong. I actually love finding out I'm wrong because I'm going to be playing a lot more of these WPTs in 2018, and I damn well do not want to make a mistake every single one of them I play. So if you can prove me wrong, please prove me wrong. But until that time, just, uh, you know, it, you got to have something to back it up. And it, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be something. Most people have nothing. It's just, I feel this is what works. I don't. I, I feel this is what works. Could you imagine that? Like, in any other game played for this much money, could you see that? That, that is mind-boggling to me, Barry. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, thank you, Anonymous. Okay. And, uh, Alex, that's all the questions I have. So, um, if there's something you want to riff or rant about um, to take us through to the closing the closing speeches, um, then feel free to do so. Um, uh, if not, we can wrap it up. It's up to you. I mean, uh, I got, I had an idea the other day. They say all of life is suffering in Buddhism. But I was thinking, all of life is discomfort. Is there, but I got to ask you, Barry, because I am uncomfortable all day, every day. But this was just something I was thinking about yesterday. I went to go, I really did want to ask you about this because we do talk off the air. But uh, not to get too philosophical, but I don't want to leave the kids with not enough content. I know it, it always sucks when your podcast ends early, as you well know, Barry. But I was watching, Barry sounds really thrilled to be back. You can say you hear him, right? Barry, what percentage of the day are you really comfortable, and what percentage of the day are you just, like, getting through stuff? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to put a percentage on it. Different days, different... I think when I'm working and I've got stuff to do, um, you're in that sort of flow state, then I'm I'm comfortable and, you know, you're going away. If you're just sitting around doing nothing, um, I think you can... Well, just now for me, I think I get... I used to be good at that, but <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, yeah, nowadays I sort of like feel, I don't know if it's guilt of not working or doing bits and pieces, like there's something I could be doing, um, or if I just start, you know, they say, I can't remember which philosopher or whatever said it, but they said all man's problems comes from his abil- inability to sit on a chair, you know, by himself for an hour in an empty room or whatever, right. it's like you left alone in your own head uh, can be unhealthy sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it depends what I'm doing on any given day, really. Um, I just, I had this thought, uh, Dennis and I went to see this band, A Perfect Circle, uh, here in Montreal, and they're, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the lead singer Tool. Yeah, as a band, I guess would be a little bit more firm uh, alternative rock, I guess. Uh, great show, but it, it's weird because you don't pay attention to lyrics of something that well when you're listening to music because you're jogging or you're uh, you're playing poker, whatever. And I, I was listening to the lyrics and I, I was just, this is all about escaping being, right? Disdain for people who escape it through religion or trying to find religion and not working uh, through drug addiction through bad relationships. It's like man trying to escape his being. 
And the crowd, Dennis and I were talking about, like, the crowd was really diverse. Like, there was, you know, there were people that looked really, like, clean-capped. Like, there were older people. There were, it wasn't, like, a standard metal crowd. So, apparently, this message was applying to everybody. And I was thinking, well, this makes sense because, like, Buddhism says, all of life is suffering, right? Which is, I think, a little bit too far. But then I, I kind of got on this thought, is all of life, life discomfort, but just you have to pick the right discomfort because like when you're in your flow state and you're working you're not uncomfortable because you feel like i'm doing something but in a way you are uncomfortable right because i assume filling out orders is not how you want to spend your day right yeah that's it yeah right so is all of life i feel like we have this expectation i just this is an idea i just wanted to i i, I just had to talk about with someone but do you feel like the average person thinks their life is discomfort like 90% of the day, or do they think it should be like 20% of the day? I think a lot of people that are in jobs, they hate and situations that they're not happy in. I mean, that obviously contributes it to I mean, myself and you, are we're lucky in that we're our own boss and we can pull on the reins a bit. Right, but even, even uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you hate your job a lot of the days, and I hate my job a lot of days, right? Yeah, but I always, I, I'm good at coming back to an overall principle right, right, of right. Gr- gratitude for it and being like, I suppose the biggest thing I think is you just need to look at other situations to like center you and bring you back and going, wait a minute, what am I actually moaning? You know, it's perspective. You can get lost in your own perspective and then you hear about someone else just just an example there's a guy I, I've known since I was really young he's an antiques dealer and um, I still see him up until a couple of months ago on a weekly basis for the last four years I've pretty much seen him every week and I've not been going to the fair for the last uh, about six weeks two months and I'd noticed he'd been losing weight and I thought he was just back and I know he was injured um, the guy's I think he's like 49 or something and uh, but he still plays junior football, like soccer, you know, at a decent level every week, and um, to keep himself fit. So I thought oh, he's back, you know, just training. He's losing a bit of weight, and then I saw him again, just deteriorating more, more weight off. And I was like, I don't think he's, you know, doing so good. Anyway, uh, long story short, I bumped into a guy just last week. I just got told um, he's had like a brain tumor. He's, oh. It's pretty. It's pretty much any day. Um, he's refused all treatment and he's just like whatever you know and apparently his mum died of something at a similar young age something similar and the last I heard he was in a hospice uh, with with not long left to live and all right that's an extreme example but this guy I'm telling you like within you know 10 months ago was fine you didn't know anything there was nothing he didn't know you know it's like life's short and that that's a yeah. cliche as well and I don't want to boil it down to stuff like oh, that oh no I mean we got sometimes we got time. sometimes yeah. <laughs> sometimes, you, sometimes you have to because that is when it should be a slap in the face to you when you're feeling like you say I mean everyone's got their own problems and everybody another very close friend of mine an older guy who's very profound sometimes he said to me before everyone's living their own daily hell he said right. to me uh, but he said it from a very positive stand, standpoint, if he can say that for such a thing. But he said, 
everyone's got their own problems. Every, on the face of it, everyone's, you know, fine or whatever, but digs even, you know, some people you need to dig really deep to see it, but other people you just need to scratch the surface and you can see what life is really like for everyone, you know, and everybody's suffering with stuff, whether it's personal or other things in their family. And I think the biggest thing is, we talked about on a previous episode as well, is, is just being grateful for the good. And the human brain and mind will always focus on the bad and the struggle rather than the good. And it's like, going back to the previous episode, it's if you focus on your train journey from New York to Montreal to go and play that event, which is like double the average salary or something or whatever in Scotland, you know, monthly salary, um, it's like if you just take that from it, then it's a positive good. Or you could go and play that, you could bust out 22nd and give a big huge speech to everyone about how unlucky you are losing flips deep in tournaments all the time <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's like there's two ways of doing it and it's true. It's like it's all perspective in how you word things. And I think internal, like your internal voice, how you're speaking to yourself internally, you know, uh-huh. and myself personally, I think I do both. I think sometimes I'm really good at it and seeing things that, you know, oh, whatever, whether it's poker, business, life, struggle, anything like that, I can be very philosophical and zen and actually really believe it and I've experienced moments of like really, you know, it doesn't affect me, like bad stuff. And then other times the slightest little thing can set you off on a spiral. takes weeks or sometimes months to even get back to feeling in the, the groove again. So I, I do, I think I think it all boils down to every it's the human condition. Everybody's fighting it, you know? It's Yeah, well that's exactly what I was thinking, it just, it occurred to me when I was younger, I thought you were supposed to be contented all the time. I thought, everybody says, like, what do you want in life? I want to be happy. And I'm listening to this amazing, these amazing musicians making an ode to how they're never happy. And these guys are probably multimillionaires. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're probably not happy. They're probably not going to remember this show. They're probably really tired. Uh, there's probably little problems that come up all the time. They probably miss their families. Uh, they probably have to eat goofy stuff on the road. It's probably hard to work out. And I was thinking, and if rock stars aren't happy, who the hell is? And we, it, is it better just to accept we're all going to be, like, I think suffering is kind of ridiculous. Like, so, if I'm suffering in my job, like what am I supposed to say to some kid who can't find water in uh, the Sahara, right? Like that's that's slightly different. But all of life is discomfort. Is it just picking the right discomfort? Or is it picking more discomfort at an earlier date to save yourself from later discomfort? I feel like this is where a lot of the physical training comes in, which is if you work if it, well, not even physical training, just taking care of your body, period, right? You, put, you push that out, and then it's really uncomfortable at the beginning. But <clears throat> you were talking about even those flare-ups, like those emotional flare-ups. Like, I yesterday, I busted the tournament, and I said, I'm getting myself some mother-effing poutine, right? And because I w- wasn't able to get that. I can't, when I'm playing poker, I can't eat. French fries with gravy and cheese curds. That was that was poutine, yeah. That you said it sounded like poutine. Honestly, it did, Alex. <laughs> <It's>, it's, <laughs> it 
I have to phrase that for and you're now describing it. It's the che- the the cheese curds and stuff in Canada. It was it was like I busted this tournament and I decided I'm getting myself some poom time. That's like <laughs> <laughs> it was poutine, yeah. Yeah, uh poutine and that was just yeah, okay, anyway, let me get let me get back forward. Uh oh god, great choice of words. Um but yeah. Uh so I ate that and then I and I kind of, like, at night, I was like, I'm kind of depressed. And I was thinking, why am I depressed? And I went, I don't know. And I, and I was thinking, <clears throat> I haven't felt like this in a couple months. Well, what what's changed in the last couple months? My life has gotten a lot immeasurably better since I moved to the East Coast. Don't get me wrong, but I've also changed my diet completely. Not because I want to. I love eating like crap. I, I really hate eating well. But it's one of those you accept discomfort early to have less discomfort later. I think it even comes in with my emotional flare-ups. They come much more often when I'm not taking care of my body, not taking care of anything. But, yeah, it was just kind of a random thought I was having, like, is all life discomfort? And I, I think there's that phrase, most most men live lives of quiet suffering. I was just wondering, you've been around and you've seen a few things. I wanted to see if that sounded right to you. And it sounds like it does to a point with you. A man is as miserable as he thinks he is. Yeah, Sene- exactly. Seneca. <laughs> that it actually is Seneca. That one as well. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, it's true. I think it all adds up. I think there's areas of your life, and it's spinning plates. And if you let one drop or you let one slow down, then certain people are affected by certain other areas. If you're having a bad day and then you look in your mirror and you see a fat prick, it's harder, you know? <laughs> that, Whereas if if you look in your mirror and you're in shape, you're like, well, at least I'm looking after myself and my health and stuff and, and whatever. You know, and the flip side, if you're in great shape and you've got a great body or you even, you know, you're just, you're a healthy weight, but it's because you you're, you can't, well, that, you wouldn't be healthy, but I mean, say you're in shape and whatever, but you, you've not got, any financial means and you're in debt and you've got money problems and stuff you know and then that's going to be hard so that's out of sync but then say you've got your health and you've got your money situation all sorted out but you're in a relationship where it's like hell you know then that's going to think or you've got problems with your family there's so many aspects and areas in life that to have them all lined up and going perfectly simultaneously all of the time it's pretty much impossible. Right. You know? And the, um, sorry, go ahead. So if you're going to let one being off affect you, I think it just comes to your ability to manage, really. Uh, I think as you get older, when you care more about stuff, I mean, like, I kids that are seven, eight, nine, and stuff like that, you sit and joke with them about anything, their minds are so in the moment and so present that, they don't care, and it's not that they lack empathy, although certain, you know, kids, certain kids will until certain ages, but they would happily, something an adult would find really offensive or destructive, they want to do it because it seems fun at the time to do it and whatever, they wouldn't dwell on it, they wouldn't beat themselves up about it for weeks and analyse it, you know, they would, they would do it and learn from it, or they would not learn from it and do it again, but I think as adults, and especially anyone with half a brain and I think it's harder uh, for intelligent people as well who do self-analyze and have got self-awareness and look at stuff 
you can do it too much in this day and age. There's mm. so much information. Google, you can Google everything and you're reading that. And then you've actually got to stop yourself and go, is me researching this and looking into this actually working to perpetuate further misery? Because all you're doing on a daily basis is reminding yourself about it. Whereas if you actually ditch the Google searches, ditch the, uh, ditch, ditch the um, self-help books, and go out and actually just live and say, right, yeah, today I'm going to go swimming, or I'm going to go for a run, do a little bit of health, I'm going to have some nice food, and I'm going to go and spend some time with friends. And then you come home after a full day, you maybe done some work, and then you watch a movie or whatever. It's kind of been a full day and a good balanced day, and you can switch off. But if you've spent the day for maybe like half an hour or an hour going through Google about happiness and depression and stuff, I mean, doing that task is not going to lead to happiness. What's what's good about it? You know, it's like, I think people can overanalyze, overanalyze, yeah. It comes down to poker, for a poker analogy, you can spend too much time studying. There comes a time where you got to go and play, like you say, and, and enjoy it. And, Everything comes back to poker. You see it. The, yeah. the biggest winner in the card room is, I <laughs> can't remember this gentleman's name. He won uh, the Seminole. WPT, but I think he's an Italian gentleman. He showed up well-dressed, eating an apple, happy, joking with people. And the time, like, it doesn't matter what place he's finished. He's won. He's living, yeah. right? He's doing, and it's, uh, uh, Gary, Gary V. Vaynerchuk, or however you say his last name. I, he said in one of his videos, the chances of you being alive are literally it's winning the lottery 10 times in a lifetime. Those are the chances of you being here. And uh, <clears throat> I was just reading an article recently in a scientific blog. Scientists were coming together to say, uh, we shouldn't be here. Like, there's a, we're looking at the odds of us being here. It, it's not looking good. So it's, uh, it's like it, the, the equivalent would be me taking a fully loaded gun and emptying, emptying every chamber into your head, point-blank range, and you just standing there unharmed, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there is a chance of that happening with something. But, well, I, it, not, not to get too philosophical, but essentially the, the way they put it is there's like 305 dials on a machine, and if one of them is off by a millionth of a degree, we're not here. Right, and somehow all 305 of those those dials were set perfect, and we're here. And however you believe that's there, that doesn't really matter. The big point is, holy hell, we shouldn't be here. And so, if all life is discomfort, it's probably because we shouldn't be here. It's probably because like consciousness is pretty nuts, right? That that we're even conscious, like we are just uh, we are just animals at some point of the day with very animalistic urges when it comes to that you can see that at poker like just the testosterone flowing through people like they could win so much if they just learned to fold but they can't do it and you can see it in all of life and it's like yeah being a conscious animal is a lot of work and like you said there's so many things you have to line up body uh health money family relationships and if you don't like just appreciate the fact that it's even an opportunity to get that struggle. You're just not going to get there. But I, I screwed up so much when I started with all of this because I didn't expect discomfort. I thought life was supposed to be super comfortable all the time. I thought you just got a good job and you were comfortable. 
in life are, oh, now I'm a poker pro. Everything's going to be easy. I'm going to make millions of dollars and I'm going to buy a house and hang out and, you know, just retire and do what I want. I'll, I'll do what every guy says they want to do in the card room, right? I'm going to buy a house with my earnings, you know, kind of get into business. That's a, that's literally every single poker pro when they're talking about their goals, right? Like every single one, right? Yeah. But it, it doesn't work like that. Like, And again, this goes back to what we were talking about in the first episode, which is the real reward when you consider discomfort, being on a train looking out at the fall colors going up to WPT Montreal is not too uncomfortable. It is a little uncomfortable because you had to pack, you had to wake up at the crack of dawn, uh, you had to... You had to wolf down your coffee before you got out there. You had to get your passport out. You had to fill in all the information. It's a 12-hour train ride. But when it comes to the fact that every human on Earth is uncomfortable all the time, losing a flip in a poker tournament really isn't anything. It's actually kind of a glorious form of discomfort because there was the potential there for you to do something real and you got to have three days of competing and make some money in the meantime and you did get to see those fall colors on the train up mm-hmm. and i can see them in my mind alex just the way you say fall <laughs> <laughs> uh, i can see that palette um okay uh that's we've we've strung this one out and we've had a little bit of a um self-awareness discussion and Hopefully somebody gets something from that as well, and we've not put a downer on anything. Um, people are cause that's why I find I think people can find themselves going around happy, and I think it's contentness actually, rather than happiness. Yeah. I'll say contentness, and all of a sudden something triggers them to think, oh, is is this content or is this depression or is this doubt? You know, and it analyzes it, and then people can look at it and turn contentness into depression or down you know which is a a horrible thing because there's nothing wrong with being content as well it's what it's what right you know it's what people are searching for but i i do i think people can sort of shock themselves with it when they sort of step back and go oh like you know if you're prone to low moods or bouts of depression you know i'm not again we're not talking clinical depression here like so i I actually hate using the word because i do know people with clinical depression and it's not nice um but yeah like low moods and you know depressive thoughts let's say say um you're in that mood if you're prone to that and then all of a sudden before you know it two three months have passed and one day you catch yourself and you're like oh it's like i've not felt like that in a long time or you know i wonder what you know such and such i guarantee you within a day or two or three you'll be feeling that it's like you sort of you know, it can creep up. It's mm. it's strange. It's a strange phenomenon. Yeah. And, um, any off phenomenon. You get to start looking for it. So you yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you'll you'll find it. That's it. Um, yeah, I actually, I'm serious. I mean, I do know a few friends have experienced that, especially recently, and um, some close people close to me in that as well. If any, we we always joke on this, and I I, I always take the piss and say things, but we do have a lot of listeners and. The large majority are males, um, ages like eighteen to like fifty or whatever. And if any, and it is a lonely profession as well. So I'm going to put my serious hat on, like end of the day after school specialist, they're called <laughs> in America type thing. And um, if anybody is experiencing like dark thoughts, depression, things like that, 
then fucking join the club. No, I'm joking. <laughs> 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 I, 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 I can't help myself. But no, in all seriousness, um, do seek help. And whether that's speaking to a friend, um, email the show anonymously, whatever. You know, we'll talk about anything. Um, talk to someone close to you. Uh, go and see a doctor. Sit, seek talk therapy. And just know that, like, at the moment, you think it's never going to end. I don't care if it's been going for weeks, months, whatever. You just think, oh, my God, this is never going to end. But it will pass. Like, everything passes. And I'm not saying it won't come back, but you do get relief that you can then work on it and better yourself and improve it, etc. So, no, joking aside, go and talk to someone. That's the best thing you can do, um, sharing it. And uh, it seems to it seems to work for people. So, um, yeah. I've definitely had spats that were, well, after the divorce, I, like, I couldn't sleep, I ate too much, or I didn't eat enough, I was 250 pounds, and I just, uh, I was, I was not doing good, and the one thing I can tell you guys is it does get better, <laughs> you, you start one day at a time, and eventually things will, you just got to try to do a little each day, and one, one of the first steps was, I, I took my ass to uh, to a therapist's office like right away because I was having some thoughts I did not like, and it was expensive. It was a pain. It was annoying. I didn't want to go, and I I kept thinking this is stupid. I don't. These people don't understand me, and it was probably one of the smartest things I ever did. It's just like going to the gym. You just got to force yourself to go and just go. Hey, look. At least I'm not doing sit ups, right? just going to sit on a couch and talk about whatever comes up, right? And then they have a really cool option now. You can use betterhelp.com, which is I have used before, which is $180 a month. And you can, like once a week, you can have an hour-long talk with a therapist. And I did do this. And it was, you think about that, that's 45 bucks a session. And it's kind of nice to get on the phone and just scream at someone everything that's going on in your life. And uh, a lot of times, my guy did have a really good perspective. Then I went, eh, I didn't think about that. But just being able to vent in a way that maybe I couldn't do uh, in a family setting because it would make other people very uncomfortable, that was very nice. And then, yeah, and if you're, and if you're in a lot of first world countries, if you look it up, there's a lot of clinics it, all you have to do is call and say like do you do things on a sliding scale and what that means is they'll try to make it cheaper for you so if you're unemployed in new york there's places to go get therapy for 30 dollars an hour which is i think should be pretty affordable for most people in the united states and i know there's a lot of places like that so yeah okay after school special is over i didn't mean for it to go this direction but let's wrap this up <laughs> No, it's true. I think you touched on it. The important thing is when you're in your own head and you're depressed, it's only your voice and your perspective you're hearing. Um, it's just sometimes it takes that other voice, someone else saying like, whoa, like, you know, Alex or Barry, and telling you like, but look at it this way or their perspective. It's hard to see another perspective when it's just your thoughts, the same running, 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 running in your head. It's like, if you talk to someone else, it can just be another voice that says something that triggers uh, an improvement or puts you on another path that, like, oh, I didn't think of that. Like you said, you know, mm. wow, I'm being a bit whatever here. So, um, yeah, um, as Alex says, you know, there is help out there and talk to someone if, you know, 
there will be someone that listens. And the, the, the crazy thing is, as soon as you talk to someone, don't be surprised when they tell you they've experienced exactly the same thing or something similar. And yep. Because uh, everybody's human and everybody will go through some varying degree or form of it at some point in their life. And if they've not just now, then you know, all, all credit to them. And like, eventually it will. It will come to everyone. It's, it's part of the human condition. You, you can't hide it. Um, you can't hide from it, rather. I mean... Um, okay, Alex. Uh, how can people get in touch with you for um, webinars, get on your newsletter, all the good stuff? Uh, one last thing I wanted to say because something Gary just said was so so important, and it took me forever to understand. Just talking to another person is really important because the only person you talk to all day is yourself. I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of an ass. And the way I talk to myself is really main in my head. And if I was locked in a room with me all day, I would not be happy. And that's pretty much what I live with all day. And I think a lot of you guys have the same thing, which is like, yeah, my, uh, my, my mind is not very nice with me a lot of the time, right? And, uh, yeah, just talking to somebody else and not and hearing yourself talk about the same problems but with a measured voice. Uh, being at, being able to put it in perspective just yourself, even if it's just you talking, is a huge tool. This is this is kind of weird, but I talk to myself all the time, uh, just because if it's in my head, it kind of freaks me out sometimes. Just th- too many thoughts, I'm not dealing with it. But if I have a little chat with myself, I'll be okay. And I ended up looking it up, and apparently that is something a lot of people use, and they say is it's a, it's actually very healthy for you just because if you're always hearing it in your head, it's such an intense feeling, the thoughts. Like the thought is right there in your skull. It doesn't feel good. And whereas if you're verbalizing it, it's much more real. It's much more tangible. It's, much, it's okay. And that is something that did help me a lot. And I didn't understand that even a couple of years ago. But if you want to reach me uh, for anything really you can write me at alex at com. i do respond to each email just give me a few days to do so especially when i'm on the road you want to sign up for my newsletter so you can get free strategy videos podcasts articles all that good stuff go to pokeradrush.com that's my blog too uh if you're interested in just random thoughts from me and book reviews and things like that. Uh, but to sign up for the newsletter which is all content all the time you go to the top right of the website and just enter your email address and you're good to go. And oh, check out my newest videos coming out on Tournament Poker Edge. Okay. And keep your questions coming in for Alex on the show. Questions at com on email and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, thanks for joining us doing this uh, double episode back to back today. It was good fun talking about your WPT uh, run, etc. And we'll speak to you next week. Cheers. Cheers. Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super fast three-player online poker set and go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room.